Philosophy is a talk on a cereal box. Religion is a smile on a dog. Michael Osterlink, welcome to the Socrates Cafe podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Michael, I don't, I wouldn't even, I, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you do, you do so many things and you do so many things well. Um, you, you are the co, you're the founder or national coordinator. You started that, right? For the national, for the medical privacy coalition in 2001. Right. Co-founder and national director of the Liberty Coalition. Right. Transpartisan uh, coalition for uh, groups working to protect civil liberties. Um, and your co-founder and president of the American Conservative Defense Alliance was, but was. very true. Okay, and now you're executive director of the Transpartisan Center in Washington D.C. So, um, a question out of what you just said in terms of all these different things, public policy-wise, yeah. um, I, I might ask them to answer: is how yeah. and what's what? <laughs> what's that all mean? Um, would you like me to jump in and answer that? Yeah, if you can tie it to your your black belt in Taekwondo, you study Krav Maga, you do um, you do seal you you are part of Seal Fit, right? I am. I am. I run uh, one of their programs. Seal Fit's Unbeatable Mind Academy. Right. So if you're gonna start tying, bro, you got to you got <laughs> to tie all of this. Uh, certainly. So um, wow, tall order. Um, <laughs> So maybe a little, actually, before I even get into some of the public policy work, maybe a little bit of my background, like education-wise, mm -hmm. et cetera, which might explain some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, graduate, my graduate work was in transpersonal counseling and psychology. I'm a licensed psychotherapist out of the state of California. Mm -hmm. And my postgraduate work was in somatic and health psychology. Mm -hmm. I did uh, graduate work, uh, postgraduate work at the California Institute for Integral Studies, and then a wide variety of other kind of classes and trainings and workshops and stuff like that. So from a I used to go to classes there, Michael. Did you really? Yeah. Uh, at, at CIS? Yeah. I met a guy named Richard Tarnas out there. I took his class. I'll be <laughs> damn small world. Yeah. Yeah, very small world. I took a great class that he and Dr. Groff, Stan Groff, yes! put, put together. Yeah. That's right. I'll be damned. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. Um, so, you know, I did those kind of trainings. So you might say I had kind of the body, mind, spirit, you know, integrated perspective on things. And then I did training with, uh, Jenny Wade and as well as Don Beck, the spiral dynamics for Don Beck and Jenny Wade has a, her own little version of kind of like spiral dynamics. So I get the, not only the psychological, but the biological, the social, the cultural. So I, I attempt to come from a, as an integrated, holistic comprehensive perspective as possible and any of the work that I do do but my grounding is in psychology you know that's kind of where I started from but my undergraduate work was in government and history so it kind of makes sense why I also do public policy as well as doing coaching and some of these other things I do do and you're a private investigator uh, and a personal protection specialist God, <laughs> but th that all fits together you're like what the hell so and I can oh, explain oh but wait <laughs> Oh, wait, There's connections. you're also it all, on it all, all these sense. advisory boards, you see, oh my gosh, so, I mean, and they're really cool, like Food Cowboy, uh, uh, Child's Guide to War, so you're, yeah. yeah, okay, do you sleep? 
Um, better now. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I've been working with a sleep specialist to help me sleep. Uh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's been a challenge over the years because I got, as you just noted, a lot going on. Yeah. Um, specific to the PI, let me just speak to that because it's kind of strange. Right. You know, when the PI, private investigator, and the personal protection specialist gets thrown into my biography. In the mid-2000s, at uh, the public policy level, I was doing a lot of work on civil liberties specific to the Patriot Act and you know, like surveillance state type activities in a very transpartisan manner, building left and right together on these type of issues. And I always argued for quite a few years on the grounds of Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, and to libertarians left to right, that was a good argument. But when you're on the Hill talking to staff who, who have, you know, who are mostly informed by the Department of Justice and the FBI and various intelligence and law enforcement agencies, their interest is less the Fourth Amendment, but how to secure America, how to make America more secure from terrorist attacks. So I thought, well, you know, I actually believe in the Fourth Amendment, but it's not an argument that's actually working for a lot of the conversations I was having. So I was like, I need to get into the mind of the security mindset and be able to talk from that perspective. So I started taking some classes, and one of the classes I took was on, it's called Jihad 2.0, as taught by, I think, uh, two or three former Mossad guys, you know, Israeli intelligence, and uh, learned a lot there, and I kind of did some other trainings along those lines, and I thought, okay, well, this is, this is good, I'm kind of getting the inside perspective of what, how to think in terms of the security mindset. Um, I, you know, I wasn't going to go become law enforcement or join the intelligence agencies because that would take forever. <laughs> so I thought, what else could I do besides doing some of these trainings I've been doing? And one thing I decided to do is become a personal protection specialist. So I took a class on that and I learned how to do that. And it was an exciting class, you know, the farms training and learn how to drive defensively and all that kind of cool stuff. But I also kind of got more of the training in terms of the security mindset. And then I was like, okay, what else can I do? And the, and the PI was a class that was available too. And I was like, well, I will also go study that as well, um, which is kind of the intersection, interestingly enough, between security and privacy, because mm -hmm. PIs through the state have access to more information than a private citizen would. Mm -hmm. So there's those intersections there. So I did as much of this kind of training as possible just to kind of get that perspective. And then since I was training, I did some work, I might as well, uh, both a PI and a PPS, not full-time jobs, not for many years, but, you know, I kind of dabbled in it to kind of get the experience, not just theoretically in books and classes and stuff, but actually in practice. Um, and I think it helped me be a better advocate for civil liberties slash security than just on the civil liberties side. Mm -hmm. So that's how that kind of training fit into the larger picture for what I've done over the years. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. But the overarching thing is all about transparency in some ways. Well, um, so I'm also, speaking of transparency, I'm on the steering committee for opengovernment.org, mm -hmm. which is a, a coalition of coalitions on transparency and open government. So there is a strong piece of transparency when it comes to national security issues and the surveillance state for sure. Um, and it's the fine line between what we as citizens have a right to know and should know so we can make better informed decisions and what, it, what is on the other side of that line, which is what we shouldn't know because the sources and methods and might, you know, cause trouble for our people in the fields actually trying to gather intelligence or fight terrorism and stuff. So there is a fine line on that and, and transparency is an important part for the work that I do do at the policy level. Uh, for me, there's three pieces of it. One, I like to see the government as transparent as possible. The second level, corporations, transparent, 
and the third levels as individuals less transparent. Like we as citizens should be able to be opaque to the government unless you know we've committed a crime and they're doing a, a you know, legitimate investigation of us. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of my concerns is like it's reversed. The government's opaque. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have to be transparent because we have to provide all this information to various levels of government, which makes us transparent to them, but they're a lot less transparent to us. So what is, what is your overarching aim? Um, so if you, I have a company called Global Integral Solutions. Integral, based on the Ken Wilber model, I was one of the original people in the Integral Institute in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, another topic we can, we can talk about. For a long time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm familiar with the integral model and AQA and all that kind of good stuff. But my founding documents, and this still applies from today, is that I'm interested in sustainable um, development of individuals, Excuse institutions, me. and systems. So all the work I do, whether it's at the you know government level, which is institutions and systems, mm-hmm. and then working with individuals, or when I'm working with individuals through coaching or through through them, through institutions that they're part of. It's it's all kind of connected, as the way I see it at least. But those are the kind of three levels how I break things apart and look for more sustainability, uh, thriving, if you might, if you might say, in at those levels. Like, you know, how do you create systems which are anti fragile using Taleb's words? Mm-hmm. Institutions which are anti fragile, mm-hmm. individuals which are anti fragile, mm-hmm. you know, resilient, tough, adaptive, com- you know, those kind of interesting adjectives to describe what's possible for us um, as we move into the future. But as we move into the future as institutions and individuals, as public selves and private selves, I'm thinking about your um, uh, Kokoro Seal Fit training in an, mm-hmm. in an interview I read. And, oh my, um, I'm just, I'm thinking about how the entire eastern notion of self um is, is so extraordinarily different than the western one where um you know self is more of a process i believe right from the mm-hmm. eastern take whereas uh, you know we look at things as like we're some sort of a entity with this integrity in and of itself um I, i'm just wondering how do we how do we how do we? How does society become a kind of self that uh, is is both has its transparent aspects, but all you know, but 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 in ways that can can forever become more open and evolve over time? Because it seems like now there's such a um, bifurcation, at least in the United States, between um, you know, like us and them. Whether and it's becoming maybe more so. I, I mean, a lot of people would point to the Trump administration, which has only been uh, nascent for le- a couple months. But, right. But, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking it's, it's been going on for a long time. This um. So the, uh, I'm trying to figure out which angle to jump in on. Yeah. Um, so the us versus them, I think it's part of human nature. You know, we we are tribal in nature. The size of our tribe depends. Mm-hmm. I think we had our opportunity. You know, as we entered into the Enlightenment, the the Western Enlightenment. And now, kind of postmodernism, et cetera, et cetera, that you know our circles of inclusiveness can and often do expand to greater numbers of people. You know, so you're not just your religion, you're not just your ethnicity, you're not just a member of a nation state. You know, you can expand beyond that, which is which is great. 
Um, taking it back to like the individual in terms of how do you create flows in society so we can naturally evolve. Um, one and back to your question about Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. Um, when I coach, one of the things as part of our program is to help people recognize, and this is a very Buddhist concept, that their thoughts are transient. They come and go. Their emotions are transient. They come and go. Sensorial information is transient. It comes and goes. Not to say it's not important, and that there are times when you want to grab onto it and utilize it and play with it and stuff. But ultimately, if you recognize that these things are transient, they're like clouds in the sky that just fly, you know, flow, it, it can if you pay enough attention to it, and this is about presence and mindfulness, teach you not to grasp so strongly to those things, to your thoughts, to your feelings, to your sensations, because those together help create your identity. And once we lock into our identity, all of us, to some degree or another, even the masters out there, we fight to the death. And and in most cases, it's ego death. We fight to protect our ego. In some cases, actual physical death to protect those identities that can and often does lead to a lot of conflict. Now, if you have the capacity through training to kind of recognize that the identity is important, but you have like multiplicity of identities inside of you, they can come and go, they can evolve, that you have to adapt to changing situations. It's not that they aren't real, but you don't want to hold on to them so tightly that gives you a lot of freedom. And when I'm working with individuals in terms of working within their marriage or their workspace, as an example, and this is small systems, not huge, you know, at the nation state level, but so relevant to your question, um, they are much more, or they can be much more playful in those interactions. They can become more compassionate and caring because they're less spending less of their energy defending themselves. You know, kind of the reptilian, mammalian mind is less active, or the brain, I should say, not the mind, and the you know the frontal cortex, the more human part, can be much more active. So, you, you know, you're, you're able to engage with people around you, especially spouses, children, workmates, et cetera, in a more fun, creative, compassionate, loving way because you're not always having to defend yourself and be reactive to when people push your buttons. And if, and if more people are like that, then I think you can start generating institutions that are kind of reflective of that nature that are, as, as Talib might call them, anti-fragile or, you know, adaptive to ever-changing conditions in the world because as we move from industrial to post-industrial or information age, man, we're talking about the speed of change changing (laughs) amazingly quickly. And those who are still holding on are going to be left behind and and dying along the way. And I mean dying kind of more of the egoic biological sense as opposed to dying physically. When I say biological, I mean like, you know, to keep up with the world, if your mindset's not freed, creative and fun and playful, and you're always holding on stress-wise, biologically, this can be devastating to you. See, everything that you're saying, I, I'm, I'm sort of extrapolating on a, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I subscribe to the view of the, the pragmatist philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, who's argued mm-hmm. that society itself is not just a, is an amalgam of all of us citizens who make it up, but are, is a kind of self um, as itself. And so I, I worry that our, if our institutions have become so ossified, if Sartre said they've become like stone, mm-hmm. um, how, what can we do? What, um, 
what can we as individuals do to create a kind of societal self that is reflective, uh, you know, that, that, for instance, the ideal for you, I think you said the, in this great interview on sealgrinderpt.com, that the East and West offer very different perspectives on the self, and ultimately I think they need to be integrated. So my interest, and I suspect it is yours too, is how do, how do we get that on a, you know, on a, on a national scale, an institutional scale? Well, so one of the things I do do um, professionally is I give talks around the country, um, and I talk about kind of the various streams that are happening within our culture, which I think represent the best of what's available to us at this present time. You, you talked about evolution, so kind of like evolutionary impulses and various aspects of, of human life and organization. So, for instance, and you mentioned still fit. So one of the things I'm very interested in is, is fitness and health. That's some of the areas I play in. So when I look out and I see, for instance, like the paleo primal movement, and just one movement among many, but they are people taking responsibility for their own health and well-being as well as the health and well-being of their families and their communities. And because it's very dietary related, also the ecology, because you have to do a husband, animal husbandry differently and farming differently. So there's you know, systemic effects. Um, and there's a big challenge within that community about, you know, why we are here, what we are here to do, <clears throat> what we are here to spend our time doing, what, what does it mean to live kind of within the confines of our own biology and our circadian rhythms and the natural rhythms of the, of the planet and stuff. Great questions. But as those questions, and that's just one community, but as those questions are asked and answers emerge and people start organizing around those answers, you, you'll have and you already are having shifts in our culture, positive shifts. And I think you'll follow soon will follow that. Not only you'll have individuals and families and some cultural shifts, but institutions will start following suit. And one of my favorite examples, and this is a slow example over time, is you know, I was uh, I was taught meditation when I was nine. And so I've been a meditator for an awful long time. Who taught you that? Uh, a therapist. Um, I had fantastic therapist who was one of the cutting edge biofeedback experts. This is 1979. And she had me do like, you know, like a computer generated biofeedback. She taught me standalone meditation, not just through the biofeedback machine. She taught me guided imagery. So I was like, you know, into this kind of at the time, woo woo stuff. Right. Um, but you know, so, so for like 20 into my youth and my teens and early twenties, it was still woo woo. Uh, 30 is still a bit woo-woo, but you know, now within the past decade, meditation, yoga are now becoming more prominent in the culture as accepted practices. You, you'll see them, you know, like in the, uh, in the business world, Silicon Valley, there's meditators there and the financial world up in New York, meditators there or yoga, you know, various kinds of these practices. The military is starting to do it. Um, so as these, as an example, these practices start inculcating into the culture, you'll see slowly, some, some slow, some quick reforms in the institutions because they're going to have to begin to reflect the changes of consciousness that occur when people start doing these practices. So I'm, that's, you know, I'm hopeful that we, we can expedite the process of evolution faster than the destruction of our species, <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, hopefully we're we're faster in growing up. Well, when I look at the Twitter account of the man who has his finger by the nuclear button, I fret. Oh, you, okay, you're talking about uh, 
Trump. So um, I do a lot of work on public policy. So let me just one angle to speak to. Um, and I'm going to leave Trump himself aside because I think he's just a problematic personality and character. See, I would but, agree with that, except he has his finger up. Yeah, yeah. Like but he is surrounded with some actually good people. Okay. Uh, General Mattis, as an example. Some of the, some of the military people he surrounded himself with have combat experience. They recognize that war is not the first, second, or third answer to any question. So I'm hoping that they will have some kind of calming effect. I, not, not as much as I would like to see. Um, but his personality aside and the threats that he poses and, and et cetera, et cetera, let's look at some of the policies because you, you talked about tribalism. Well, I, t- I, I called it tribalism. Mm-hmm. You talked about um, us versus them. So there seems to be, through kind of his movement, a resurgence, or maybe it's not even a resurgence, but it's coming, coming to more consciousness uh, to a greater degree, this us versus them. Oh, those Muslims, those Mexicans, those, you know, these various groups that we don't like. Not we, you and I, but, you know, kind of the zeitgeist of, of the followers of Trump. They're, these people are scary. Um, and especially around the Muslims since 9 11, that's unfortunately for them in America has been in the consciousness. Um, but as, as problematic as it is for them and for us who are not Muslim, we live in, you know, because we don't want to live in a country like that, but. It's also an opportunity. Every challenge is an opportunity for us to look at these kind of issues and address them differently. You know, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear about regression in service of the ego. Uh, maybe if there's a collective ego, we are at certain times regressing, and it gives us the opportunity collectively to kind of undo some of the damage from the past. And hopefully, when we you know get back on track and we're and we're evolving, we've cleaned some of that crap out. Uh, so. One of my hopes uh, is that this is an opportunity for us to do that, to look at, you know, these kind of quote unquote alt right and this white nationalist and white supremacist and and take them seriously as both as threats. And what are their concerns? Because most of their followers are not hardcore ideologists, but are scared people. How do you take their their fear seriously without supporting their worldview? And uh, those are important questions I think that need to be asked. Because their fears are legitimate. It's misplaced, I think, personally think, of who they're fearful of. Um, but it's a, it can be a really scary world for a lot of people. And how do you address that in such a way that you take away the them, so it's not just us versus them, and also make them feel more secure in the process? So they're more exclusive, inclusive as opposed to exclusive in their consciousness and more secure from the threats that they that drive them into this kind of lower uh, tribalistic thinking. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I find, um, number one, I find you in the best sense impossible to label. Um, I honestly don't think of you as, you know, just in in any, in any typical way as conservative or even libertarian. I I find you an openist. Um, (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Cool word. Yeah. I mean, I think that you are a sort of a living embodiment of sort of East and West traditions. And I, and I, when we look at the composition of our country today, and so many people from, from the East uh, and the West and how we're blending together, um, I see all this enormous possibility here. And then, I, and then, you know, all of my cohorts say, oh, America is more polarized, alienated. We're more alienated even from ourselves, much less... Uh, from from others, 
and much less from our governance. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we can reconcile that and, and become that kind of um, evolving self as on a societal scale that I would that does integrate East and West in, in the United States that I would like to see. Yeah, it also suggests we integrate North and South as well. Amen. Not leave any any of the <laughs> any of these out. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that yes, yeah. okay. Let's just leave it at that. Sure. Yeah, just because I also think that the shamanic traditions can offer us a lot of insight into the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness too. Absolutely. So I, mean, I lived for years in, in Chiapas, Mexico. My wife was a teacher in an indigenous community and speaks a Mayan tongue. Um, so I'm, I'm using a vastly expanded notion. I mean, even North America, Mexico's part of North America. Most uh-huh. people don't even know that. You know, they're Americans. So, right, very uh, true. Yeah, so, but absolutely. But I'm just wondering how to create some sort of integrated model for our society that's actually not pie in the sky. That each of us, because you said I learned to be a leader a follower and a better teammate through your Kokoro um, seal fit training, right? You want me to give, want me to talk, talk a little bit about that so people yes, have an please. idea what that is? Please. So Kokoro seal fit is a, is a company founded by commander Mark Devine, a retired Navy seal. One of the things that they offer was Kokoro camp. Kokoro in Japanese in Japanese means indomitable spirit. And it's a 50 to 55 hour camp when I took it, there was no sleep, and you just train for almost 50 to 55 hours, including grinder PT, ocean evolutions, you're on the beach doing training, you're in the mountains doing training. Like You you just get your training on for like 50 to 55 hours or so. The idea behind this is multi, multifold. One is that you, at a certain point, no matter how well-conditioned you are, even if you're a professional athlete, your body kind of gives out after a certain amount of time. You're just physically exhausted. Um, same with your mind. No matter how mentally tough you are, your mind starts playing playing games with you. Whether it's hallucinations because you've been up for 50 hours, or you know the kind of the negativity might seep in. Why am I doing this? I shouldn't be here. All that stuff can and often does occur for most people going through the program. But what can happen is that your your indomitable spirit, the spirit side of you, can come through. And say, no matter what my body tells me, no matter what my mind tells me, and the, we do this dichotomy of body-mind just because it's where our culture kind of discusses these things, um, I'm going to push through. And you develop this, this spirit, this indomitable spirit, which is, says, if I can accomplish this, which I, fortunately I did, you can do anything. Like no, Almost nothing natural like that you might encounter in your daily life uh, compares to being able to survive like 50 hours of this kind of beatdown. Now, you know, there could be a natural disaster, or man-made disaster, or war, which can completely just eviscerate what I just said. You might <laughs> completely, you know, challenge it in a completely different way. But it's just, you know, it is a way, uh, what we call crucible, a self-induced crucible to really challenge yourself and see what you're made out of. Part of that is, and since it's the SEALs, it's a SEAL product by Commander Divine, it's very team-oriented. And the ideal is for you to recognize that you are part of something bigger than yourself. And that's one of the ways you kind of get out of your suffering is you're like, wow, I don't, you know, I am suffering. So what? I have my buddy over here, a guy or a gal, there are women in the program as well, who's also suffering too. What can I do to help them, support them, care for them? Um, And that kind of takes your mind off yourself and you're supporting someone else. So it's a very team-oriented process. Now, stepping back prior to that, I did a three-week program with them. Is a soft academy, special operations academy, 
which, which was geared towards young men who want to go in Navy Special Warfare SEALs, Army Special Forces or other special operations communities in the U.S. or some of our allies. So I lived on campus for three weeks, trained 12, 14 hours a day. It's a very integrated program. Uh, we did meditation. We did yoga as well as everything else you could imagine, like in the ocean and on the beach and all that kind of good stuff. And Commander Devine uh, is a is a fan of, a student of Ken Wilber. So we also, oh, wow. yeah, we AQIL was a big part of the program. That's how he and I, like, so I did the program. He and I hit it off because I did it three weeks with him. I got to know him. I did it at the Kokoro camp. I survived it. He knew my background and training. He knew I knew Wilbur. So it was just like a great connection. So a year later, when he wanted to develop a new, more civilian-oriented program, that's when he came to me. And that's another part of our conversation. That's what I run for him. But I did the three weeks in the Kokoro camp. It was my 40th birthday challenge. I wanted to see what I was made of as a 40-year-old. Um, was when I was 39 when I started training for it, and 40 when I completed it. But it taught me all the things that uh, you read about in that interview, you know, about teamwork and uh, the self from an Eastern perspective. Because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is be so identified with your physical body and mental self when you're going through that process, because that's just going to lead you down the wrong rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So, again, I'm, I keep coming back, though. I, I spent a lot of time in South Africa holding dialogues there, and they have this extraordinary notion of Ubuntu, which there's no literal translation, but it kind of means I'm in you and you're in me, and that there is no I and, uh, before, uh, before there is this thing called we, that this notion of I emerges from we. There has to be some sort of societal agreement on what in the world I amounts to in the first place. Um, and I don't know if you know this, I'm, I have dual, you know, I'm Greek. I have dual U.S. Greek citizenship. No, and, cool. And we have this concept, uh, my yaya taught me, called arete, which is yeah, yeah. all around excellence. Uh-huh. But it's it's a type of excellence in which duty to self and duty to others goes hand in hand. So I can't be all I can be unless I also do this same to make sure conditions are fertile for you, Michael Osterlink, and everyone else to, to you know, to, to develop their talents and discover their talents to the fullest too and i and i keep coming back to the to the united states and i ask myself is it is it just that people feel a sense of impotence that there's just nothing that they can they can do to contribute to any sort of higher good that also helps them further evolve their individual self um otherwise what's all the anger all about um, you know, it's always pointing <laughs> yeah. the finger at Trump, channeling all your hopes and aspirations to Obama uh, or Bernie Sanders or somebody, instead of just looking in the mirror and saying, well, what about me? What, 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 why am I not stepping up to the plate? Well, l- let me just speak to your, your Greek thing first. Um, one, one of the, my favorite, most recent books that I've read is Natural Born Heroes by Chris McDougall. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it, I recommend you do, because mm-hmm. it, it talks about what you're talking about in terms of who we are and what we're here to do, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of functioning for others, not just for ourselves and mm-hmm. what makes a Greek an adult versus in other, other mm-hmm. societies, a Greek male, it, it might be a Greek male, female. I'm not, I have to imagine it's for both uh-huh. sexes, but interesting, really interesting book. Um, I completely agree. So wh- when I work with folks at the coaching level or even transpartially, I've given, you know, talks on that and I suggest some exercises one of one one thing I recommend highly is a mirror exercise. You know, 
psychologically speaking, are you projecting all this stuff on someone else? Well, look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. How are you doing something similar to the whoever you dislike, hate, whatever? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it might be scaled down completely compared to what you really dislike about someone else. What you know, <clears throat> or it could be somewhere in the middle or somewhere closer to them, and not just someone you dislike or hate, fear, whatever. But also, you mentioned. Sanders as uh, someone who someone on the progressive left might look up to it's like wow or you know on the libertarian right it might be a Ron Paul or on the more conservative libertarian right a Rand Paul you know so there are there are people who play that the kind of prophetic or or iconic roles like wow you know they're they're going to save us well look in the mirror what are you doing to save yourself your family your community um, I think it's a really great question to ask and then I what have people do is that answer that in a very integrated approach like are you what are you doing to take care of your physical body are you sleeping right are you getting into proper exercise and movement are you eating right social engagement are you spending time in nature you know all these kind of questions i ask when i coach is you know is about you taking responsibility for yourself and one of our coaching programs we're in year two of it of of it and the first year is i it's all about i like so what are you as an I doing to take care of yourself in these realms? And then in year two, we're moving to we. How are you taking what you've learned in terms of your own self-development? You know, now you're eating better, you're sleeping better, you have generative thinking in your mind, uh, you know, more positive. You're thinking about how you can touch institutions and people and leave them better off than when you touch them, when you first encountered them. You know, all these kind of great things that you're changing in your lives. How do you go from I to we? Like, how can you take that kind of, ways of being, thinking, and behaving, and affect those around you. And it's amazing to see some of our clients, and this is not just with us, you know, this is going on all across society, of people changing their cultures and their workspace, or in their, in their family homes. Like, just people are getting healthier and happier and more productive. Um, and it's just, it's great, but you have to take some responsibility for yourself. And, you know, the I, the I, we uh, dichotomy, you know, is it really a self? Is it really an I? You know, are we part of something big collective? I always I say yes to both, mm. but I think our in our culture at this time, for the most part, here in the United States, we have very shallow individualism. Because I think if we had a much deeper individualism, the deeper you go inside yourself, the more you find other people playing in there. <laughs> well, I we, it, yeah. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't interrupt you. No, no, please, please. No, I just keep harking back. It's something actually. We haven't. We're almost out of time. We haven't touched on. It's just this notion of um, sort of transpartisan dialogue, mm -hmm. and it makes me sort of hark to this notion of a transpartisan self. You know that. Um, yep. That there's we're 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 we have dueling natures. Yep. Um, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it's something that sometimes we shouldn't even try to reconcile. But, uh, so Jim Turner is a mentor of mine, someone you might want to consider interviewing. He talks about in the individual, there's, there's the, the, the competition between order and freedom. And that same competition is found in our society and found in our founding documents as, a, you know, as an Americans. Um, and you can see swings like where either individuals or institutions and cultures swing from being much more ordered to much more freedom or anarchic or oriented. And then you swing back, you know, but it's hopefully at a high, either a higher level 
because you've evolved, or you de- you know a lower level because you've devolved, you know, depending on the individual, the the and the institution. But I think it's a fascinating concept. It's like how do you how do you recognize these various transports and aspects of yourself as you coolly stated, and then play around with them. You know, they're part of you. Mm-hmm. I think it's neat. Yeah. Well, all I have to say, Michael, is to be continued. Awesome. We're going to do this again. Are there um, before we sign off? Are there any links that you would want um, listeners to to be directed to? Um, I too do a podcast, and occasionally we'll do interviews um, on print and radio and stuff like that, um, and occasionally write too. And you can find that at Michael D. Osterlink. Dot com. Hopefully in your show notes you can spell my name and stuff correctly. O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K. Right. So okay. it's Michael D, as in David, my middle name, and then my last name, Osterlink.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, M. Osterlink, my first initial, full last name. And uh, on that you'll find out, like, I tweet everything on fitness and food and nutrition and, and physical training to national security and defense reform to transhumanism and transpartisan public policy and alternative education, wide variety of different things that are of interest to me. So don't get too confused if you follow me on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I want to get wonderfully confused following you on Twitter. I love it. Michael, cool. thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I really hope you'll, you'll do this again with me. I definitely will, and thank you for having me. Okay, take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye.